UX Podcast Episode 274. I'm James. And I'm Pad. And I'm stuck in my chair. My cables got caught. <laughs> Damn. Oh, oh, sorry. Bit of a panic moment. I'm still James, and this is UX Podcast, balancing business, technology, people, and society every other Friday for a decade, with listeners in 200 countries and territories from UK to Albania. And today we have for you a link show, which means that we, during our digital travels, pick two articles. It doesn't always have to be articles, though, does it? I mean, it's blog posts. It's sometimes we haven't had another podcast, though. But we each pick one uh, and we talk about it for 15 minutes. And we always say, do we have, do we have anything to say for 15 minutes? It turns out we always do. <laughs> Strange that. And last time we had a link show, we ended up having just one article. Yeah, we had too much to say. Well, yeah, awesome. (laughs) Stephen had too many things to inspire us about. So today's articles, we have two for you, as said. And one of them is System Thinking for Design Systems, which is by Buddy Tamrin. Um, who is... Uh, He's head of design in uh, Indonesia, education and civic tech. Correct. You found your yeah. notes quicker than I found my notes. But. Mm. And the other one is, it's high time for product designers to become privacy practitioners by Stephanie Lucas. Yep. And she's a UX professional, uh, likes of us, but also very much a responsible design champion and advocate uh, who does a lot of writing and and thinking and teaching on how to design more ethically. We haven't decided which one to go first. So I'm going to say privacy over systems. Let's go for privacy. (laughs) And P P comes before S. Alphabetical. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, so Stephanie's written this article actually urging us as designers, uh, as product designers, to understand privacy implications more and more proactively addressing these issues with design. And to be clear up front, she's not saying that we, we, need, we need to know the legal stuff. And she's not saying we need to be the experts. She is saying we need to be paying more attention because there are things going on in the world uh, where people are becoming so much more aware of privacy issues when it comes to data collection and consent given. Uh, That means that there are always these aspects to websites where we should be putting more effort because sometimes we just say, well, the legal team can deal with that or get get a sign off from the lawyers or... We, we put that aside and somebody else decides what the text should look like because it has to look a certain way. We th- At least we think that way. And sometimes just we uh, companies, I think, use these the standard cookie banners and we just say, okay, we, we'll use that because it's a simple decision. Uh, but given that there are these, all these problems and issues uh, coming to light and have been over the past decade, I guess, uh, she's urging us to 
put this into our work processes to actually uh, spend time uh, doing the work. And uh, I think the, be the best part, of the, the best part of the article, what I like most about it, is urging us to co collaborate and co cooperate more with legal teams, because that's again. Uh, Acknowledging how much designers can do in the way of helping others within our companies communicate in a better way with with, with regards to the important issues that we all have to address, really. Yeah, yeah. I mean, as designers, we are designing the the contact points with the users, or the enabling the moments where privacy is where, where privacy issues are communicated or breached or potentially breached, or need consent, and so on. We are designing those, so we do need to have some of the understanding. Right. And I think when I first saw the title of this article, I realized that, well, so many people are going to be going, well, what don't we as designer have to care about? There's mm. so much always. We, it's, it's like we're always adding to this um, bag of tricks that designers need and the, the, the competence that designers need, and it's sort of never-ending. Uh, this but is as where we talk about Jared Spool, as we've mentioned multiple times, he talks about the broken comb um, profile of skills. Yeah. You, you need to be aware of a multitude of different things to be a good designer. Not a specialist or expert in all of them, but aware of many. Okay, exactly. exactly. That's such a good way of putting it, that not be an expert in all of them, uh, which is also what Stephanie's saying but actually be aware of it so that you can contact and collaborate with the right people to make the right decision. And in the article, she, she's actually put forward uh, three categories. Uh, personal data collection, uh, something that most websites do. If you have a contact form, you're collecting data about people. Uh, start thinking about what should you even be collecting? But uh, as she's pointing out as well, does information have to come in a certain order? That's something that we may not be aware of, but something that we can check off with legal in collaboration with them and not just ask them. But th that's what tends to happen, I think, is just ask legal and tell them how it's supposed to be done instead of having a conversation with them and proposing alternative ways at, that we as designers are so proficient in helping them realize that there could be several pathways forward that help people understand uh, these legalese texts in a better way. And here's, here's also a moment where you get to use your design skills and try to, sometimes I guess, we'll be forced to add something or it needs to be phrased in a certain way or placed in a certain place because yeah, legal says so. Exactly. So so here is kind of like, I guess, part of the you know um, collaboration, the, the dialogue of yeah. understanding what is actually trying to be achieved. And if we can still achieve it, but maybe we're less kind of brutally legal. Um, no, yeah, exactly. And, and, and sometimes, but the feeling I get uh, from a lot of projects I'm in or the types of discussions I hear is that somebody will say, we can't do it that way because of legal. And yep. that's just accepted without even talking to legal. It's something that somebody may have misheard during a meeting or it's something that was the case five years ago and not isn't the case today. So again, just that conversation, so, so important. <laughs> or perhaps you've seen it during a kind of morning seminar or something. And yeah. someone said, if you put this there, then, then it's going to fulfill this particular thing. And it, it, it's like we're, uh, it's like legal is hard to talk to. And it's like legal is 
someone else. If I listen to them too much, I won't be able to do things the way I want. And I think that's something that she pushes so well is that we're on the same team. We're playing for the same side. Although it does permit me to think back to when another link show mm. when we talked um, about Heather Burns' article um, about checking your privacy privilege, right? And how she pointed out that you know um, the the disadvantage we're at because our industry is so unstructured, and you know the Eagle people and so on. They've had they've gone through career paths with like multiple years of formal education through various educational systems, career paths taking them through certain points. Mm. It's been very streamlined. Whereas we as designers, as UX designers, it's not really that structured. Exactly. And sometimes there seems to be that expectancy that we're supposed to be structured around this, but it's all moving so fast and we're responsible again for so many things. It's really hard to feel confident that you've made the right decisions in all these cases. But it does feel, spinning back to what I was saying about so many things that we have to think about, that our whole profession is like sort of taking two paths. Either you're really focused on just the interaction design and the and the UI design. And whereas what we're talking about is now expanding our profession, keep expanding it to understand more uh, areas of uh, expertise within web development. I remember when you and I first met, uh, you were using uh, web manager sometimes as a phrase to, to talk about yourself. Yeah. That's something I'm circling back to that I want to use more and more these days because it it captures in a better way what we're actually talking about. Somebody needs to have that holistic picture. Mm, yeah. Now, it's interesting this because um, we do see a lot of focus on the UI, the, the UI aspects of UX and mm. Figma and design systems and production. And, and, you know, product management is an area where that perhaps the, where some of the more what should we do aspects um, are landing in many organizations when it comes to product. But, um, but yeah, maybe there's a bit of a split between researching um, and understanding the problem space and actually designing screens to solve the thing that we want to do. So mm. I, I I, there's kind of three years, I guess, spontaneously summarizing all of that. <laughs> but uh, that so then when you were talking about um, the COBE, uh, it, it made me think about how, how I really also appreciate what Stephanie's writing about, how she's calling for a certification process tailored for product designers. Hmm. So you and I have previously talked also on the show about certification for designers as a whole. But now I'm thinking more uh, that this is a way forward that where we, we pick smaller, more niche areas of certification so that I can pick my own goodie bag of, of, of certificates that help people understand what type of designer I am. Yeah. Um, back in episode 194 with Zoe Rose. Yes where we talked about accreditation within the design mm -hmm. industry. It's something that, that God, that was three years ago. We, we keep coming back to this accreditation and, and things are bubbling up, but it's, it's, um, oh, it's a very difficult one to solve. And I, I, think, I think it's a good point around, well, well privacy, uh, privacy, um, edu privacy education mm -hmm. that um, is brought up by Stephanie. 
And I think that me and you pair have experienced the whole tick blocking exercise privacy education in many organisations especially when we did all the GDPR stuff a few years ago when we had to watch a certain video uh, and the organisation demanded that you watch a certain video once you've done it then you could go off and claim that um, say all our workforce are GDPR ready um, because they've watched our seven minute video or right, that's exactly. telling them all the points about GDPR mm. and, and that's very silo based uh, as Stephanie mm. says in the article and it's not in, it's not embedding privacy first or thinking into your, your way of working with design yeah which makes me feel that there are so, so many good points in this article so you, you need the baseline the baseline would be the certification so that you know that you have a common language and vocabulary to talk about these issues but then you actually do also need to talk about them you need to have those regular meetings not just once a year but over time create a a an environment where you're actually involving uh, the people with the right expertise in your work uh, so that they feel that they are part of it which allows you to learn from each other and not just one delivering a piece of a this is how it should be written, uh, kind of uh, kind of material to the other. Yeah, yeah. I think I'm um, jumping down, if I'm allowed to, jumping down to consent dialogues. That yeah. was the third of the three sections mm-hmm. that Stephanie holds herself to in the article, and, and that's interesting as well for the collaboration side of things and from a UX writing point of view, how you can work on these. This is also something we've visited over the years. How can you how can you make a too lazy didn't read version of some of these privacy or some of these consent dialogues with huge amounts of text and things and legalese and really hard to understand stuff that no one reads? I mean, you and I are probably amongst the people that read slightly more and spend the time on checking consent boxes, various things. Yes. <laughs> but I mean, if if I spend any time watching anyone else visit a website, and, and definitely my kids, then mm. you know it's it's almost like a reflex test yeah. where these consent dialogues. How quickly can you find the right button to press to make it go away? Mm. The, there's no consideration about which button to press half the time. It's just like you get rid of the thing so you can carry on doing what you want. Exactly. Which, which is a, which also a failure of consent. And actually, it's not even arguably even legal because you've got to have informed consent. Exactly. It's not legal, but uh, it's so common and prevalent within the whole industry, within the whole world of, of websites that it's impossible to enforce the law. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, because, you know, if I can, I can see in the data that maybe you clicked on that consent form, like, 0.3 seconds after arriving on the webpage or mm. something, you haven't considered consent about that. Well, unless I've visited before, which I can, I appreciate that that's a, <sighs> that's a response that a company can have. True, true. You visit, you can't read, can't be expected to read it every time you visit. How do, oh, how do I know it's the same, it's asking the same consent as last exactly, time? Exactly, without tracking that person. How does the company know that my opinion's about consent haven't changed since last time yeah it's it's a it's a mess <laughs> oh, oh, yeah but again a reason for us to be talking about it so much more there was one there was a third one which was the second one in the article yes dark patterns and, and as she says and acknowledges that's not uh, especially related to privacy it's it's a larger problem than that but there are 
regulatory trends to keep track of. And that's the interesting part here that we as designers can keep track of these trends because they actually affect how we should be designing things. Because laws are being, I mean, we talk about GDPR a lot, but there are lots of laws in California which actually need to be uh, thought about as well uh, when it comes to what you're allowed to do, when it comes to asking for ma- for extra information when you're asking people to subscribe to newsletters and stuff like yeah. that. Yeah, the whole kind of opt-in, opt-out thing. Yeah. I mean, it's it's really very pleasing that Harry's Harry, Harry Brignall's dark patterns has become something that is actually included in laws. It's, yeah. uh, it's a good thing that they, they, the concept... The thing, the idea mm. that we can have, um, where you can do things digitally that effectively tricked people into doing something they weren't aware of is is a really important milestone, I guess, for our, in our digital progression over the years. And I love that because that makes me think that there's sort of a solution. Well, it's not a solution. There's never a solution. But to, to what Stephanie is after here, that we need to become more competent within this, er- within this area. What Harry Brignall has done with Dark Patterns is actually he's created a, a design pattern library uh, for Dark Patterns, which makes it easy to find and, and, and categorize and understand what we're talking about, again, with that common vocabulary so that we can decide what we're talking about. We can go through it systematically, check, have we done any of these? Uh, so it's a really good way of applying design to a design problem. <laughs> Uh, and I know that Harry's talked about the dark side of dark patterns and his website is used mm. as a, a, a playbook. Oh, um, yeah, of course. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Because it's the ultimate source mm. to go to find um, how you do and yeah. you can do stuff that tricks people because he highlights all the ones showing you how to do it. But but no, no. I, I think the, um, the positive aspects of it are where uh, it enables us to understand the situations where it is a, is a dark pattern and how maybe discuss the legal aspects and also i guess the moral aspects am i okay using moral there Definitely. Um, that that we should be doing certain things so yeah. so as, as you said it's not just privacy i mean mm. that's that's going a little bit further than just yeah. privacy and dark patterns but there are specific dark patterns that we use to get um, consent and get approval get the kind of people to go forward and tick tick legislatively that that uh, it's good to meet legislative legislative requirements without yeah. um, actually properly meeting them. Right. And I think that's where if you're thinking, well, how can I keep track of all of this? Well, that's why you've started this collaboration process with your legal team is that you actually talk with them and ask them for help in keeping track of these things that keep coming out, these changes to legislation that covers what you can, can and cannot do on the web. I think that was a good summary. I think so, too. Let's see what we can talk about when it comes to systems. So article two for today, um, system thinking for design systems. Um, So meta. uh, Yeah, Yeah. I know. It's almost symmetrical. It's kind of like (laughs) system design you want for design systems. But anyway, it's system thinking for design systems. This is by uh, Buddy Tamarin, who, as we said at the beginning of the show, is senior principal designer in public sector education in Indonesia. He writes on his website that he's currently on a mission to improve student learning outcomes in Indonesia. But in this article, well, he's he's basically using a system lens to explore participation and contribution to the design system that's in place where he works. 
and and he uses he uses a causal loop diagram to map out the elements that affect the contribution and to the design system according to his own mental model of how things work. He he says himself, it helps me to see how things are interconnected. Yeah. Now uh, now he goes on in the article to give a couple of specific examples of how the causal loop diagrams help him. One of the examples was to um, um, surface or anticipate intangible barriers. So that is to say, um, well, what he, what he means, I think, by intangible barriers is to, to, to find the things that aren't immediately obvious, things that could impact the participation in using or maintaining or developing the design system. Um, um, so, so the the reason for for me including the article today is 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 not just because because of design systems and how he's he's seeing kind of issues with his own design system, how it's developing, how it's maturing. For me, the real point of including this article today was um, his use of causal loop diagrams as a tool for system mapping as part of system thinking, right. which, which really, really interested me and, and really, really set me going. And, and I know, Per, that at least during the, the last couple of days of the, the last couple of years of the pandemic, you, you've been making a fair bit of use of causal loop diagrams. Yeah, and as you mentioned, the pandemic, that's especially one that I've been using as, as an example, actually, uh, when teaching uh, over the past few months. Uh, early in the pandemic, and so it's actually from March of, of last year, uh, I, I made a system map uh, describing all the different factors that either increase or decrease the spread of the virus. Uh, and I did this based on news articles I was reading and research I was reading, uh, and it was really interesting. And I didn't, I don't say it's complete in any way because that's the interesting thing about system maps. It's never done. It's never complete. But you can always start, you can always keep adding to a system map and start figuring out, so if I'm adding this, if I'm adding washing my hands uh, to the system, what, what happens? Well, I can decrease the spread of the virus. What's interesting then is that, well, that also decreases the spread of other types of viruses so that uh, we decrease the spread of more diseases than just COVID. Uh, so that was an interesting, like, so when I started seeing that circle, I saw other things that was, that was decreasing those other aspects of it. And so, but then you were you were having lockdowns and it was that was affecting mental health and that was affecting uh, social unrest and the social unrest was affecting uh, adherence to following the guidelines and that actually meant uh, an increase in the spread of the virus. So all these causal loops. What's interesting about looking at them when you introduce introduce one thing to increase another factor or decrease another factor such as the spread of the virus, that same thing can do exactly the opposite if you follow another path. So becoming aware of these things is so, so valuable when understanding risks and negative impact and positive impact of everything we're doing and understanding the complexity of it all. Because yeah. as I just said, anything can be added to it. It's never done, but you can always learn from it. Yeah, yeah. And what what, what we see there is you, you may see positive contributions or positive things, mm. uh, and that that maybe leads to directly to a positive increase. Yes. But there might be negative effects or or implications from doing that thing 
or the secondary thing might lead to a negative thing. So you see how well, this rolls out into mapping an entire system of how everything becomes I interconnected. And, and, and how you, you can't keep all that in your brain at all times. Well, you can't, can't picture the, what are th the joy of these causal maps, I think, is that it really does become visual. Yeah. And, and I think it's more easy for the brain to understand, especially when you're dealing with more and more complex systems. I mean, I mean, I mean uh, what you've done there with the, the pandemic, um, uh, the COVID example, is that you made quite a uh, uh, quite boundary to your system. Yes. You started in quite a defined space and then built or mapped out within that space, which, as far as I'm understood, is very is also almost essential to do when you start working with systems thinking and, and causal mapping, causal loop mapping. But you don't try and map the world. You, you're going to fail if you try and map the entire planet. But if you stick to a certain, um, a certain system... A uh, boundary system, then you've got more chance of achieving something that you can build on, as you say, mm -hmm. um, interconnected systems. But also acknowledging that, I mean, you could, I mean, since the the ultimate system map, of course, maps the entire world, and realizing that your your system map always maps just a tiny, tiny part of it, that makes you a lot more humble uh, when it comes to what you're trying to achieve, and realizing, but also yeah, more acknowledging and realizing, well. I think this is going to happen, but there are so many factors in play that I have not been able to map, that I have no idea about, that I have to keep an eye, an eye on what's happening because if I don't, my assumption may be proved may prove to be very wrong. Yeah, yeah, and this this goes to that mm. everything is interconnected. Yeah. So, and we have to, we have a lot of the time, a lot, of the, a lot of the work we've done. I think even historically, we, we worked in a very linear fashion. I think in web design or digital design, we've we've had a very much a factory production thinking process. Maybe we used to call it waterfall or whatever, but we still got a very production-based way of working. Yes, we call stuff iterative, and we have agile and the rest of it. But ultimately, we're we're, we're often talking about linear flows with linear achievements, and and whereas. Um, Everything is interconnected, and it's all—it's all circular. It's—it's it's loops. It's interconnected feedback loops. Buddy himself, um, in the the article, encourages us to see things as systems, or obviously, but but and not as snapshots. And I think the thing about the, the point about snapshots is really good, relevant as well. Is is we all too often, um, you know, we we just research, we do an audit. Um, or analysis or current um, state analysis uh, with um, where we mm. we see where we are we create a static thing a, a, a snapshot of something um, that is uh, intrinsically transient and changing all the time but buddy he gives an, a, a personal example um, in the article uh, we often see things in a snapshot for example when i was in elementary school i assume my friend tony was someone that was not motivated, and I labelled him as lazy. In reality, Tony had an issue in his family and didn't have the mental space or energy for school. The thought of his parents fighting and arguing was exhausting him. So seeing Tony's state, mental state, as part of a bigger system rather than a fixed snapshot allowed exactly. Buddy to understand the situation better and be more um, empathetic and adjust his thinking 
and his attitude towards the the situation as part of a bigger system. Right. It's such a lovely story as well, and it's it's so good at illustrating the the boundaries of systems because I think historically, if you look at a, someone having problem at school, you look at the school system, you look at what's happening there, and you don't look at the family system because that's that's always seen as a separate entity, and that's that's obviously changed a lot over the past decades. But I think by expanding our understanding of the system and how we draw boundaries and understanding that a system over there also affects a system over here. Yeah. It make, as, as I said, it makes us more humble, but also so it makes people understand more and it actually changes the way people think. I love I love how we put, got that forward. Yeah. And, and we see this time and time again that what you what you meet on the surface is like someone someone's um, kind of kind of angry in a meeting and you're wondering why they're angry in my meeting. Mm-hmm the reason they're angry in the meeting might not be because of the topic of the meeting. Exactly. And it may not be about you. And a lot of people assume, well, was it something I did? Was it something I said? And again, it's all these assumptions that we make in all different contexts that, that cause poor decision-making as well. And that we assume that this thing over here is the problem. So we fix that instead of, again, now I'm going back to Stephanie's article about communicating and talking to people to understand and listening, primarily and foremost, listening to people to understand and to give them space and not always attacking them with questions. That's not what I'm saying, but actually giving space and understanding and acknowledging that I'm not seeing the whole picture here. Yeah. If we're gonna if we're gonna get slightly into the whole mental health side of things as well as an example of of how this kind of bigger broader thinking is useful, yes. uh, thinking back to our interview with Jennifer Akulian about mm. um, mental health. But um, yeah, um, it's it's so much bigger than we are. Mm. And so and so to to wrap up this, um, I really like the use of causal um, loop diagrams as part of system thinking. It's not the only way of mapping si- complex systems. Mm. The, there are plenty of different ones. I mean, I'm, I'm not... Um, we're not going to attempt to go through them all because there's rather many. Um, <laughs> but you do a lot of mind mapping, which isn't really mapping systems, so ma- mind mapping, um, as I was collecting thoughts. But, but, but it's cluster, a good example because, I mean... Yeah, yeah it's a really yeah, example there. Exactly. But I think cluster cluster mm-hmm. maps is what you call them one that's related to yeah. um, system thinking where rather than have... have um, because in a mind map, you have everything in the middle. Mm-hmm. Um, you have the starting node uh, mm-hmm. and you build everything out from that. Whereas... W- and you have different with, arms that contain sort of different topic areas. Yeah. But sometimes you do realize, well, actually, this arm up here, that's like the third third arm of one one topic is actually related to something down here which is the fifth arm of another topic and then you can draw an arrow between those and that's yeah. sort of then you're starting sort of a system map actually well yeah yeah mm-hmm. well you into there mm-hmm. when you're moving closer to a cluster map where, yeah. where a cluster map is just you 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 put out everything mm-hmm. uh, and you start connecting the boxes and you embrace the chaos and just keep on connecting the boxes mm-hmm. so you don't you don't worry about it being like focused or structured like a mind map this is all about connecting the mapping of the connections yes uh, which you can um, redraw or revise or produce other formats later i guess mm-hmm. if you want but more the point is that you get down the chaos Get it out there. Exactly. And I have to say, it, it, this is also a really good article on actually understanding more. So have a look at that at, at system app because it actually explains a lot about the things that you can consider when you have a design system within the organization. You're trying to get people to use it in the right way. 
use it in the right way, developing the right way, mm. embracing the right way. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for joining us for this link show today. And as usual, you can help us produce UX podcasts by signing up for our volunteer lists. There is one for transcripts, there's one for publishing, and there is one for helping us produce the show notes. And if all of that sounds too much effort for you, then you can also give us a little bit of money, which helps us pay for things like hosting, various services we use to help us produce the show, and of course, Remy, our producer. Yes. I have to say about the show notes, I mean, they are now shock full of interesting links that I almost not do not think about as we're doing the show, but there's so much stuff there to actually dive deeper into. I'm actually blown away, as always, by the help we get from our volunteers. It, it's wonderful. Remember to keep moving. See you on the other side. James. Per. Do you know what happens when it rains cats and dogs? No, I don't know. What does happen when it rains cats and dogs? You have to be careful not to step in a poodle. Oh. Because that would be a catastrophe.